purpose, we'll have to talk about circumcision, which is always a fun topic, right? Um, that's what we came here for, is a study on circumcision. Uh, but Galatians deals with circumcision, so we want to talk about um, what that is, um, what that's all about. I gave you this handout, um, the Epistle to the Galatians. All right, this is um, Paul's, if you track it chronologically, this is Paul's first letter. Of course, it doesn't say um, in his epistles, it doesn't say in the year, you know, whatever, in the month, on the day, I, Paul, am writing to you. We don't, he doesn't date things that way. All right, so the way, that, um, the way that we come to the dating of the epistles is a little bit by, somewhat, we follow tradition, right? We kind of look back to those who were closer to the time, and we look for evidence of, well, what did the early church fathers, what did they say about, you know, the order? There was probably traditions passed on. What do the traditions say? And tradition is helpful that way, right? It kind of gives you the, the lay of the land, so you're not just making things up on your own. Um, but the other way that is probably more helpful than just following tradition is to try to look from the letter itself and to look especially from what's the main historical book of the early church in the Bible? The book of Acts. So we compare what Paul is talking about and little things that he mentions in the epistle. We can compare that kind of side by side with the book of Acts. And we can come to a pretty good idea of a general ballpark, anyways, of when these things were written. Okay? Um, now, what's the difference between writing in the year, say, 49 and the year 59? To us, it probably doesn't make a huge difference, right? How many of you know the, the, the key differences between 49 and 59? <laughs> yeah, me neither, okay? Um, to us, that's just kind of all a long, long time ago. Um, but it is, is kind of interesting, and, and as a student of the Bible, one of the things that you can um, do over the course of your life is you can kind of, you go back to these things, you read them again and again and again, um, and over and over and over, and you might be able to, develop, to see some kind of, um, not a change in Paul's theology, but you can see certain things, certain, certain themes that were kind of key in his early life, that not that they weren't key later, but that he's going to talk about different things later in his life. Um, you can see little references in his epistles about I was in chains or I was imprisoned, and that's, that helps you kind of make dates. Um, and when we read Galatians, we'll probably read a significant part of it tonight. How many of you have ever read the book all the way through in one setting? Has anyone ever done it all at once? Okay. It takes about 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. It's very doable. Um, it's the kind of, it's, it doesn't, you don't get lost in um, all kinds of historical details. Um, it's pretty punchy, I would say. Fiery is another word to describe it. Um, at one point, uh, we'll, we'll read it here, but he's talking about circumcision, and he says, this is somewhat famous in the Pauline epistles, he says, you know, those who are advocates of circumcision, why don't they just go all the way? You know, if circumcision's so great, why don't they just finish it off? You know, and that's in the Bible, okay? That's in the Bible. So if you think that, um, that pastors get fired up sometimes, well, we're just trying to be like Paul. Right? Um, but you can see here just sort of the introductory things. Where are the churches of Galatia? 
Well, they're in the region of the Roman Empire called Galatia. Yeah? Okay? So that settles it. Um, it's modern-day Turkey. Has anyone been to Turkey? Okay. The cities, um, Galatia is a region, um, and the cities there that Paul visited, you can look these up in Acts 13 and 14. You've got a city called Antioch. Um, there's lots of Antioch. Isn't there an Antioch? There's one in Tennessee, right? Um, is there one in Illinois? There's a Galatia in Illinois. So Antioch was, uh, it has, is a popular name for a city. There were lots of Antiochs in the, um, the Middle East kind of part of the world there. But this one is called Pisidian Antioch. There's a city called Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And we aren't going to do it tonight, but if you want to see kind of the background there, look in Acts 13 and 14, and you'll see the founding of those churches. Okay, so those are the churches. Paul has planted them. He's founded them. He was their um, original pastor, so to speak, and now he's writing back to them. So he has some kind of prior relationship to them. This is not just an email blast to somebody who doesn't know him or who he doesn't know. He knows these people by name. He knows their history. They have a shared history, and that comes out a little bit in the letter. Okay, so that's where it was written. Um, we already mentioned a little bit when it was written, um, but the big thing for us, there's, there's maybe some, some things we could glean from when and where, um, but the kind of key question when we're looking at the epistles is, why was it written? Okay? What is the occasion for writing this epistle? I told you last week that um, Paul, does not, uh, Paul is not the kind of guy who just is sitting at a desk and who's saying, you know, I've been thinking. Here, here's some of my thoughts. Um, the epistles are always written because there's some kind of an issue. Okay? Usually it's a problem. Something's gone wrong. Something is up. And he's got to write in order to correct it. And one of the things we can learn from that is that um, troubles in the church are occasions for growth. Right? Trouble, let me repeat that. Troubles in the church are occasions for growth. Just like troubles and challenges in your life, your individual lives, are occasions for growth. Okay? Now, is growth always fun? <laughs> no. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we go from strength to strength. But a lot of times the occasion for growth is, oh, I've got to admit I was wrong. And then, okay, here's how I should have gone about this. All right. So if our question is, why was Galatians written? One of the ways we can figure that out is by looking at, all right, well, what are the problems that Paul addresses? What are the issues uh, or the occasions here? What's the occasion for writing the letter? And if you open your, uh, your Bible there, we're going to see it throughout the letter. But go ahead and open to Galatians. And go to the, actually to the end of the book, okay? Um, the epistles, this is just a basic structure of any epistle, any letter. There's an introduction and a conclusion and sandwiched in between. This is really technical stuff, right? You've got to go to seminary to get this knowledge. There's an introduction and a conclusion, and in the middle is the body of the letter, 
Okay? But think about what's, what you try to accomplish in a conclusion. What do you try to accomplish in the conclusion of something that you're writing? You restate the points, right? We call it summing things up. Okay? So here's how Paul sums it up. And this is beneficial for us. Um, we're going to compare that with how he introduces things right, in a minute here. This is just good um, when you have to write papers. Um, how many of you have ever, do you remember writing papers in college? Rebecca, how many papers did you have to grade? Did you ever have to grade them? Yeah. It's not fun, is it? People don't know how to write. Yeah. Um, but Paul does. And so here's how he sums things up. Look at uh, chapter 6, verses 11 through 8. We're going to see if we can kind of figure out one of two things. Either we're going to read the solution, you know, at the, at the summing up point, you would expect to find he's going to sum up the, the solution to the problem. Or he's going to restate, here's what was wrong with you. And now I've told you, you know, how to, <laughs> how to set it straight. Okay? So here's how, here's how he sums things up. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Okay, so Paul, sometimes Paul uses his companions, Timothy, um, Titus, who else traveled with Paul? Barnabas, Silas, Luke uh, was a traveling companion of Paul. There's a guy named Silvanus. They get mentioned as helping him write. So Paul was probably dictating, and one of those guys was writing it down. But here, Paul says, I'm doing this myself, okay? Let me sign that thing. And when he says large letters, it could mean... He's writing really big, you know. He has bad vision, and so he writes with really big script, okay. Or that's, that's probably not what he meant. The reason I say probably not is because um, paper in those days was hard to come by. So when you wrote on paper, you tried to conserve space as much as possible, pack as much in as you can. So what he's probably meaning here is look at how important this is. See what large letters, see what significant things I'm saying to you. Take it, take it to heart, okay? This is, this is a big deal. See what, lar- see what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, just let your mind kind of, we did this a little bit on Sunday. We'll do it again in here. What, what does this remind you of? In the Bible, think Bible stories. Do we know anyone else who wrote things with his own hand in the Bible? We have any writing stories in the Bible? Did anyone ever write anything? Okay, we know the story of Jesus stooping down and writing in the dust, and they brought the prostitute, or the, I don't know if she was a prostitute, they brought the adulterous woman to him, and he's writing in the dust. Okay, what other Bible stories? Someone writing on things with his own hand. Oh, good. I hadn't thought of that, right? Daniel, in the book of Daniel, um, God's hand writes, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. That's good. Does Zechariah have? Zechariah wrote, his name will be John. That's good. Yeah. John the Baptist's father. Yeah. All right. Good. You guys are, are remembering things I had forgotten. Yes. God writing the Ten Commandments. Okay. That's what I was thinking of. God writes the Ten Commandments when he gives them to Moses with his own hand. And I think that that's the one, to me, that's the one that comes to mind because a big part of what Paul's letter is about is what do we do with all this Mosaic law? 
How does the law of Moses, what does it mean for us as Christians? So it's almost like Paul saying, yeah, you guys know the law of Moses. Here's my law. I'm writing this with my own hand. Anyways, um, just kind of an aside. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that you may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For, these, for even those who are, not, who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks, not of circumcision, but the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. All right, so what do we hear in there? What is, what's kind of the, um, either the main solution or the main problem that you hear in there? Okay. There's something, let's be um, outward obedience to Mosaic law. Let's be even more concrete than that. He's really dealing with the question of, it's not just obedience in general, right? That's implied here. But the real issue is, do you need to get circumcised or not? Right? Do you need to be circumcised or not? Jason lets out a long sigh there, right? Um, <laughs> What's that? Okay, there is, there is something here about, um, this goes back to what Chuck said, outward versus maybe what we'd call inward or true obedience. Okay. Okay. Wouldn't you say that also it's not really circumcision at the root of becoming a Jew? Okay. There's this question of um, you gotta be a Jew first. Do we have to be Jews? Listen to the language of did you hear the language of boasting in there? Right? There's two ways you can boast, and I think this is what um, this is what Chuck was talking about and Jason too, but it's good to use Bible words. They don't say, I boast in my outward obedience or I only boast in my inward obedience. What are the Bible words here? There's two options. You can boast in the flesh or you can boast in the cross. Somehow the cross of Jesus is opposed to this flesh business, okay? So one of the main things that we see in Galatians is this question of being circumcised, being Jew, do we have to be Jews? You know, those are related questions. What is the biz, what's the deal with the flesh? And how does the cross, what's the sort of boasting we're talking about here in the cross, okay? Um, go back to the beginning then. Let's look at the introduction. We start at the end. And we'll go back to the beginning here. 
And I'm, I'm going to read it for you again. And you hear, if you can, if you can hear in here, kind of like a thesis statement. Okay, look for a thesis statement. When you're writing a paper, that's what a good advisor helps you do is to refine your, um, your opening paragraph so that you're not just going all over the place, right? Um, when the sermon is good, you know right away, right, Paul? Okay, I know what he's going to talk about. He's, he's given me the theme or there's some kind of thesis, there's some kind of hook. So we'll see if we can can listen for this if we can hear a thesis statement of sorts uh, for Galatians. Paul, an apostle, this is verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. We know who it's from, we know who it's to. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, does anybody want to take a stab at the the what I mean by the thesis statement there? I'll give you a hint. It's not in the part where he says who he is or who he says who he's writing to. <laughs> That's just who it's from, who it's to. It's like a good old memo. To. From, concerning. What's the concerning line here? The subject line of the email. Well, you're, you're getting ahead of me, Kay. Only, yeah, you're too far ahead. You want to get right into the meat of it, right? Okay, deliverance. Jesus gave himself for sin, right? And usually, that's what we talk about, sin. What's, pro what's the problem with man? Man is bad, so God is mad. So God needs to save us from our sins, right? What's the, how do we sort of, uh, when, we're, when we're not really trying to be technical, we say the gospel means the forgiveness of sins. Your sins are forgiven. We talk a lot about sin, about guilt, about shame, and how the blood of Jesus takes away our guilt, takes away our shame. But Paul here, you notice, he mentions sin, but then he says, here's the purpose of it, to deliver us from the present evil age. Okay? So the th what you're going to expect then in this epistle is... Somehow, he's going to talk about deliverance from the present evil age. That's what Paul is setting us up for. He wants us to think about the world around, or he wants the Galatians to um, consider what does it mean to live in an evil age and to be delivered from that. Okay? And if we link these things up, here's how I would sort of draw some things together for us, maybe connect some dots. Here's the, here's the temptation. In the present evil age, the temptation is to boast in the flesh. In the present evil age, the temptation is to say what really matters is being circumcised, becoming a Jew. If you're a Gentile, you need to become a Jew. 
And the answer, of course, that Paul, the solution that he's going to give us, we kind of know this, right, is no, it's not, we don't boast in the flesh, we boast in the cross. All right, so I'm just trying to set you up here for what we're looking for in this letter. Something about what it means to be in the middle of an evil age and what it means to be delivered from an evil age. Okay? Now, I haven't mentioned sort of the key, the key word that Lutherans love this, and we rightfully love it. Galatians, uh, if you flip your page over here, I gave you a little section on um, what has been the enduring impact of Galatians in the history of the church. Um, the, the kind of, the Reformation, since the Reformation, Galatians has been, if you ever have a question about what it means to be justified, okay, everybody say that word, justified. Say it again, justified. It's a beautiful word, okay? Galatians is all about justification. And so before we start reading, let's just make sure we know, because Paul, um, Paul does not write like a dictionary. He doesn't define the words as he's going. He just uses them. And you have, to, you have to kind of figure it out. So let's make sure we know what it means to be justified. When we talk about justification, um, what do we mean? Who wants, who wants to take a shot at defining justification for us? You are right, so somehow being right, that's good. Being right is part of it. Let's, let's, make, let's use an even more technical word, Jason. Being righteous. Okay? Being righteous. And the word justification is uh, oftentimes is a courtroom sort of word. Okay? So where do you get justified? You get justified in court. What do you need in order to be justified? You need a judge. And how does a judge justify somebody in court? No, that's how the, he, well, maybe at the end he says that's the verdict and it's decided, okay? But what does the judge do to justify someone in court? What's that? There he speaks, right? So the judge declares a verdict, and then he slams his gavel down, I think. It's been a long time since I've been in court, okay? Thank God. I don't want to go. Um, but the, the idea here, the picture here is this. Before, we are before not a human court, but we are before God's court, okay? And in God's courtroom, we need to be declared righteous, not just by our peers. We don't need the court of um, public opinion to say, Roxy Tempest, you are so righteous, right? Um, because they might be wrong, right? We need, we need God to declare us righteous, okay? So justification has to do with how do I stand before God, all right? Now, why is it even a question how I stand before God? Why isn't it just a slam dunk? Well, of course I'm righteous before God. <laughs> Why would he have any problem with me? What's, the, what's our problem? We're sinful. And so we know this is why we're always a bit afraid of talk about courtrooms and court scenes. This is why when we see the police 
even if we're law-abiding citizens, we get a little bit nervous. We hit the brakes almost reflexively, right? Um, I'm not looking at anybody in particular. It's just what happens, right? Because we know our conscience testifies to us that we are not righteous. And so if I'm going to appear in court, I either need a really bad judge who can't tell the difference between righteous and unrighteous, or I need a really good defense attorney <laughs> because all of the evidence is against me, right? The prosecutor has an easy day in court against all of us, in God's court, okay? So the reason that this is even a question is because we know we are unrighteous, right? And so we need a way, there needs to be some way for the unrighteous man to be declared righteous before God and have it not be a sham. Because what do we know about God? Is he a bad judge? No. He's just. He's all-knowing and he's perfect justice. Okay? So how can, this is kind of the the big um, question at the heart of the gospel. How can a just God declare unjust people to be just or to be righteous? To be not guilty. And of course, what's the answer to that? The blood of Jesus, right? He gave himself for our sin. He gave himself in our place as our, this is a good substitutionary word. He, he became our substitute so that we might receive his righteousness. Great exchange, right? He takes my unrighteousness, I receive his righteousness, okay? But that, that way that Galatians is going to go about this is by saying, hey, there are some people who are telling you the way to be justified is through the flesh. You've got to earn it somehow, or you've got to do something. There's a way, but you have to do these things for you to become righteous, to be justified. All right? Questions or thoughts on justification? Now, yeah, go ahead, Roxy. Sure. Yeah, they, um, the, the, at the time when Paul writes to the Galatians, the, um, it's, it almost seems like, I don't know, comedic is not the right word, but it almost seems laughable to us that people were actually believing that, well, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. I mean, if, could you imagine somebody coming into our church and raising their hand on Sunday morning and saying, you know what's wrong with you Lutherans? You're not, insist, you're not insistent enough on circumcision. We would all say, get out of here, right? You've got to be kidding me. Um, but that really did trouble the church then. And it's not because they're, um, you know, they're foolish or something. It's not because they're dumb and we're so smart. Um, it's because that really just was the issue at the time, okay? Now, we can take this, and this is what Luther saw. There's an analogy, a very pretty, you know, it's a pretty easy analogy to draw between insisting on circumcision and following all the dietary laws of the Old Testament and what ended up happening in the history of the church, which is what happened at the time of the Reformation. 
they're insisting not on, so the Pope wasn't saying you all need to be circumcised, right? That wasn't Luther's, Luther didn't have a problem with that. The insistence was on other man-made things. So other works of the flesh. When Paul talks about the works of the flesh, it's, it's really hard to see he's talking about circumcision, okay? But the natural extension of that is any human works, okay? And this is where we see this much more applicable to us, right? People aren't running around saying you need to, well, some people still do say you got to get circumcised, right? That is what counts before God. But for the most part, Paul, that, this is the slam dunk on that, okay? But what we do see is, well, you need to, you need to have Jesus and something else. Jesus plus, right? Um, it's not enough to believe. You also have to fill in the blanks. Well, you have to have faith, right? You've got to be justified by faith. But you've got to believe and, Jesus and, right? Anytime there's Jesus and, you're in the, that's a Galatian heresy all over again. Jesus and, Jesus and. Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and the dietary laws, Jesus and obedience to the Pope, Jesus and, you know, um, I don't know, wearing long sleeve long, long uh, jean skirts or something. Jesus and, anything that is Jesus and is what Galatians is about, okay? Now, let's get into it a little bit more here so that we don't just um, read the intro and the conclusion. Let's, let's read a little bit of um, how Paul sets it up. And if you look on the outline here, we're going to read the, um, Paul's explanation of the problem. So, verses 6 through 12. Does anybody else want to read, or do you want me to read? I'm happy to do it. Caleb, go for it. Read uh, 6 through 12. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the approval of, for I am now seeking the approval of man. No, am I? Am I now seeking the approval yeah. of man or of God? Or, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay, so um, this is, we, we haven't read any of the other epistles, so this is just, um, this, this is an anomaly. This is an outlier. Usually, here's how Paul starts his epistles. Paul, an apostle of whatever, blah, 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 to the, Thess- the Thessalonians, grace to you and peace. I give thanks to God always for you because you're so wonderful. Or to the, you know, to the Romans, I give thanks to God because I hear such good things about you. There's almost always a thanksgiving. How does the body of his letter start here? I can't believe what I'm hearing about you. What happened to you? Right? I, I started the church there. I planted the church. Everything was great when I left. And what's this? What's, what's going on? I'm astonished. So here's what I mean by this is a fiery sort of letter. And you can hear the fire there. 
If anyone tries to give you a different gospel, if anybody tries to do a Jesus and, let him be accursed. The Greek word is anathema. If you've ever heard of anathematizing someone, that means they're cut off. Let him be anathema. Let him be excluded. Kick him out. Excommunicate him. Okay? Um, and again, we don't have, I mentioned this a minute ago, it'd be nice if Paul had like written a dictionary, uh, the dictionary of St. Paul's letters, because then we could say, oh, well, what does he mean by the gospel? Let's look it up in the dictionary. Oh, Paul says in the dictionary, here's what I mean every time I use the word gospel. But that's not the way um, that language works, right? Um, Paul is not a slave to the dictionary. Now, we, what have we said in here is how do we want to define the gospel for ourselves? When we say gospel, what do we mean? It's the good news. It's not just any good news, right? It's the good news about Jesus. And if you were going to summarize it for somebody, what would you say, Jacob? Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. Okay, this is, um, if, I, if I can impress one thing on you, I want you to remember this. Pastor Uppold always said, the gospel is Jesus is risen. That's the gospel. Okay, it's even shorter than John 3.16. Jesus is risen. Now, how can you get that wrong? Well, you can draw the wrong conclusions. And that's what the Galatians are, or that's what these people who are troubling the Galatians, they're called Judaizers in the book, that's what the Judaizers are doing. They're saying, Jesus is risen, and that means you've got to really double down on the Moses stuff. Okay? So they would say, yeah, Jesus is risen. We agree with you on that. But what it means is that all the law is now even, it's more important than ever before. Jesus is risen to be the, uh, another Moses. Right? It's like we're coming back from Mount Sinai all over again. Jesus took us back to Mount Sinai. Okay? Jesus took us back. And here's what Paul is going to say. The time for that is over. Jesus has delivered us out of Sinai. He's taken us to something even better. He, Jesus is not risen to take us backwards. Jesus is risen to take us into something new. All right. Now we're going to skip over uh, the next part, but you can see if you ever want to read uh, kind of Paul's autobiography, you can read it there in chapter one and a little bit in chapter two. Um, but let's get to where he talks about, um, go to chapter two, verse 11. He, what he's doing in chapter one and two there, he's defending his own authority. So one of the things that, that, one of the ways that they were attacking Paul, these false teachers, was by saying, you know, he wasn't even really a true apostle. After all, he wasn't in the book of Matthew, was he? He wasn't in Mark. He wasn't in Luke. He wasn't in John. Paul wasn't running around with the other apostles. So, of course, he gave you some good stuff. He got you started, but you really need to listen to us. We're coming down to you from Jerusalem. And Paul, he hasn't been properly certified. He hasn't been properly, he doesn't have the right credentials. So Paul, in chapter one, I'm just summarizing for you, chapter one and a little bit of two, he's like, look, Jesus appeared to me on the road to, I didn't need to ask Peter, hey, what should I be preaching? 
Jesus told me, <laughs> right? I got it directly. I got my diploma direct from the Lord Jesus. I was authorized by him. I was sent by him. Um, I don't need any other credentials, all right? But here's a little incident that, that for Paul illustrates the point. Um, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, here's what he says. But when Cephas, who is Cephas? Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. We had an apostolic showdown. It's a cage match. Two men go in, only one can come out. Um, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James is in Jerusalem, Peter, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. And he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, in front of them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. All right? Do you see his point here? What was, what was Peter doing? Let's make sure we understand. The church in Antioch is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Okay? And when Peter's there, with, when, nobody, when none of the other Jews from Jerusalem are there, the Jewish Christians are there, Peter's acting like this is no problem. Jews and Gentiles together. This was God's plan. This is great. I even had a dream about this once. Does everybody remember Peter's dream? Peter's vision? It's recorded in kind of um, incredibly repetitive detail in the book of Acts, which is always an, uh, um, when something's repeated in the Bible, must be important, right? God repeats himself on purpose. Okay, so Peter had this dream about the unclean animals coming down. Oh, I could never eat. And what does the Lord tell him? Rise and, rise and kill, Peter. Rise and eat. Eat the pigs. Eat, that, eat the bacon. Eat the sausage. It's no problem. It's all clean now. And the point was, Peter was supposed to draw from that the conclusion, not just that pork is tasty, though it is, but you learn from the animals, this is good Old Testament stuff, you learn from the animals about the humans. So if what used to be forbidden is now clean, what does that mean about the Gentiles? They're, you, you can eat with them, Peter. It's okay. <laughs> right? You don't have to be secluded from them. And as long as nobody from Jerusalem was there, Peter was fine with that. Yeah, I had the vision. I had the dream. We're all on board. Jews and Gentiles, both alike together, on equal standing before God. No problem. But as soon as these guys show up from James, all of a sudden, even Peter starts to worry, what are they going to think of this? Right? See the concern about justification? Okay? Peter is concerned about their opinion. Peter is concerned, what are they thinking of me? Better draw back. Better just hang out with the Jews. We better keep the Jews and the Gentiles separate. Okay? So again, notice Paul's letter to the Galatians is addressing a very practical problem. We can't have a church where Jews and Gentiles are divided. They're supposed to be woven together. So how are we going to fix this? How are we going to solve the problem? 
right? That's the problem. That's the issue. Jew and Gentile separated from each other. Here's what he says. And this is the, the heart, kind of the beating heart of the letter. So uh, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Now he's going to talk about we and what I think he means here. It's, it's hard to say. I think he's, we should read this as if this was still part of what he was saying to Peter. So when he talks about we, Peter and Paul are both what? Jews or Gentiles? Jews. So I think he's using like the we that way. We Jews, not like those Gentiles. There's a little bit of, I think, sarcasm in this, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not ugh, Gentile sinners. That's what I mean by sarcasm. I don't think he really thinks that the Gentiles are dirtier than the Jews, but he's kind of playing into it. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, we Jews, also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Okay, so what would be the, the concrete examples of works of the law? Circumcision, all the, all the food laws, all the civil stuff of Israel, okay? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, who's been the example of sinners so far? Those Gentiles, right? If we, when we were justified in Christ, suddenly started hanging out with yucky Gentiles, does that mean that Christ is then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. That'd be pretty foolish, wouldn't it? Rip down a wall just so you can build it back up again? Rip it all down so I can build it back up? Who was just doing that? Peter, right? Peter had been talking about, oh, the Gentiles are, are coming in. This is wonderful. Oh, but now I can't eat with them, right? He ripped down the wall that divided them, and then he started building it back up. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I'm rebuilding what I said should get ripped down. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. This, this gets a little bit uh, deep here, we might say. It's kind of deep stuff, deep. You've got to use a deep voice. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Kind of mysterious stuff, isn't it? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. All right? That verse, verse 20, is what I would say is the, that's the heart of the letter. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Paul says it in the first person, singular, I, 
But he's, this is not just Paul's own experience. This is supposed to be the universal experience. What happened to Paul is what is true for all of us. All right? Now let's see if we can take it apart here a little bit. All right? Let's see if we can, we, we can do this. I said it was mysterious. What's the mystery here? I have been crucified with Christ. Well, when did that happen? <laughs> okay, how, but I don't remember there being a cross there. He can't, he's not literal. That's our point here, right? He doesn't mean that I actually got nailed up on a cross, okay? So what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? In what way do, does every Christian get crucified with Christ? Okay, baptism, Paul talks about this in Romans 6. I have been united to Christ in baptism. Okay, what about if a person comes to faith before that? Usually the order is for, for children, baptism and then teaching. Is it possible to go the other way? Are you sure? Are you positive? Is that okay? Okay, so it could happen the other way around, right? Could happen the other way around, in which case the same thing happens. Right? Baptism seals the person into what they've been converted to. Right? But that is conversion language. I have been crucified with Christ, and so I no longer live on my own. Right? I'm no longer just me. It's me and Jesus now. And that means before God, when, God, when I appear before the judgment seat of God, and he looks at me or Todd, we'll use Todd as our example, right? And he says, all right, Todd, let's see the evidence. You got anything that I should uh, say that you're righteous about? Todd says, well, I'm with him, right? He said I could come. And Jesus says, yeah, he's with me. And God the Father says, yeah, good. That's what I always wanted, right? And then that's where the righteousness comes in because you've got Jesus. Now, if Todd starts to say, well, (laughs) I was circumcised on the eighth day, and that's pretty impressive, (laughs) right? Not impressive at all, right? Um, Or if Todd says, well, I got this indulgence from the Pope, wrong. Well, I tried really hard. I don't, that trying, right? Um, I wanted to do the right thing, right? See how anything can get substituted here for circumcision, but the, the issue, at least at the beginning, is boasting in the flesh and circumcision. All right? Now, um, how much time? We've got a couple minutes. Where should we go from here? What he does in the rest of the book is um, highlight for us, okay, um, let's find some examples from the Old Testament that show that this has actually always been the case, that it's not the flesh that, is, that counts for justification before God. It's always been by faith. So look at, um, look at chapter 3 here. We'll just read a little bit. Look at, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 7. He's going to go to the example of Abraham. Now, why would he go to the example of Abraham? Okay, because he's got a really good Bible verse. He can, he's got a, what we call a proof text that he can point to. He can say, see, it's already there in Genesis. Why else go to Abraham? That's the Jew's father. 
<laughs> yeah, if you're going to show somebody who says we need to boast about circumcision, and you say, well, let me show you what Abraham, let me show you what Abraham is really all about, you cut him off right at the source. Okay, so Abraham was the father of the Jews, and Abraham was the first guy to get the covenant with circumcision. Right, so just makes sense. We're going to go to Abraham. Here's what he says about Abraham. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Oh, I'm sorry. We need to go back up. Um, start back up at verse. Um, go to verse four. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Okay, does anybody have in their Bibles a little reference to where that is in the Old Testament? Genesis 15 I believe it's verse 6, right? Genesis 15, verse 6. So this is what I mean by a proof text. Paul's saying, hey, don't you know the Bible? Don't you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that Abraham was justified by what he believed, not by circumcision. All right? So then he's going to keep going here. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are the real sons of Abraham. That's what he's saying. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay? So this is, this is great um, just to see how Paul is writing, how Paul is thinking, how the Spirit is combating this heresy Right, this false teaching that you got to be circumcised. The Spirit says, "All right, let's go all the way back to Abraham. Let's just get it. Let's get it right at the source. Abraham was justified by faith. Okay, by faith, by faith. Well, then why did God give him circumcision? Right? Why all these laws in the Old Testament? Why all this stuff about food and what you're allowed to touch and what you're not allowed to touch? Why all this stuff about leprosy? Have you ever asked that question? Why did God give all those? Was it just to confuse everybody? Or is it just to confuse us? What's going on here? Okay, well, you're, this is good. This is what Paul is going to go on to talk about. And let's end on that note tonight. Um, if you go down to chapter 3. Verse 19. Why then the law? Why the law? If God gave the promise long before the law came, Abraham, in your timeline, is before Moses, right? And how many animals did Abraham take on the ark? Wasn't Abraham, right? This is just good. It was Noah, right? Okay, I'm just testing you to see if you're awake. Okay, why then the law? Why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, sh offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Who put the law in place? Who's this intermediary? Who was that guy who went up the mountain? Moses. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? 
Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law was never given to justify a person. Okay, why then? Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to promise. So why did the law get, why did God give the law? What does Paul say? Use his language. Okay, whose transgressions was it added because of? The people's transgressions, okay? And so somehow the law was given, he uses the language, he says, because we needed a guardian. The Jews needed a guardian. What do guardians do? Does anybody have another, a different translation other than the ESV? It's a great word. It, the Greek word that's behind it can mean tutor. You needed a tutor, okay? Did anybody have a tutor in grade school? You won't get one. You've got a mom. You've got something even better than a tutor, right? A tutor, what's the job of a tutor? Make sure you do your homework, right? Hey, did you do your work? Did you, did you double check? Um, can I see it? Let me see. Show it to me. Can, yeah, did you do it right? Are you sure? Did you check your answer? Did you double check it? That's what tutors do, right? That's what the law was for Israel. It was a tutor. It was a guardian to keep them... You said a minute ago, Roxy, to keep them set apart, right? The law was meant to keep Israel separate so that they didn't dissolve into the other nations, okay? And the whole reason to keep them separate was not just so they could stick their tongue out at all the nations and say, Nana, we're God's favorites, right? Why were they set apart? So that Christ would come. And now that Christ has come... You don't need the guardian anymore. You don't need the tutor because you have Jesus. And if you, go, if you look on to chapter 4, what the rest of the epistle is all about is life um, when you don't have a guardian, life without a tutor, which when you're a student, when the tutor goes away, we call it freedom, right? And then you can do whatever you want, okay? Uh, but... The, <laughs> That can be a little bit dangerous, right? Because the, the issue here is not go do whatever you want, but the thing that Paul's going to end up saying is walk, we walk by the Spirit now, right? We don't go back to the flesh, all right? So uh, if I can sort of summarize for you, I know we didn't read through the whole thing. Um, I'm just trying to give you a flavor of each of the epistles in here on Wednesday night. The main issue that Galatians is talking about is, do, I have to be, do Gentiles have to be circumcised? Or, 
put it this way, do Gentiles have to become Jews? Now, we don't really worry about that issue much, do we? Because, but, that, but that's okay, because what we deal with is still related. How are we justified? Okay? That's really the question of Galatians. How is a person justified? Do you have to be a Jew to be justified? Do you have to be circumcised to be justified? Or is there some other way? And the answer is through faith in Jesus. We are justified by grace through faith. By grace through faith, right? Um, and the, the, that's really the central issue of the book here. Now, um, the way that Paul talks about this, this is like a burning question. This is a burning issue, okay? And um, in the history of the church, at the time of the Reformation, this teaching on justification, um, the Lutherans called it the article on which the church stands or falls. The article on which the church stands or falls. If you get justification, the thought was like this, if you get justification right, everything else will fall into place. If you get justification wrong, everything else will be wrong, okay? Um, Because for both the first century, the 16th century, and I think even in the 21st century, this is the primary question. How am I going to be justified, okay? And um, it's interesting just to see even people who um, deny God's existence, who don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, um, have you ever heard people talk this way? You need to be sure you're on the right side of history. That's justification language, isn't it? Um, If you don't get justified by God through faith in Jesus, you're going to be looking, you're still going to be looking for justification, Okay? This, is a, this is a human thing. Every person wants to be justified. Um, but if you're not justified by God in Christ, you're going to go looking for your justification in other places. And the most powerful place to be justified in our day and age is on social media. <laughs> That's right. We call it, there's even a term for this, it's called virtue signaling. Does anybody know what it means to, be, to virtue signal? You virtue, to virtue signal means that you, um, you signal that you have all the right opinions about things. Okay? Now, who gets to determine what the right opinions are? Well, what will the majority like? And um, a per- th- this is a really dangerous place for a soul. If your soul is looking for that approval... That's kind of cool. Um, Today's a good day for strange things. Um, if your soul is looking for approval for this, um, you know, for this justification apart from Jesus, you're going to find it in really shaky places, right? Because, I mean, what's, what is socially acceptable now in the year 2023? Um, well, just wait five years. You're going to have to have completely different opinions. Uh, you're going to have to have completely different virtues, um, in a hundred years, it's going to be, be totally different. So this is like an anchor, right? This is solid ground. Um, and the courts of public opinion are always, ch- they're shaky, they're shifting sand, they're sinkholes. And your soul uh, needs the solid ground, not the sinkhole, all right? Questions on Galatians or thoughts here? 
There's other on the back of your paper there. I gave you, I tried to just give you an outline of some of the highlights of the epistle. I'll try to do this with each of them because there's no way we can do a whole epistle in one night. But Galatians has the famous fruit of the spirit passage in it. Okay, instead of living by the flesh, we live by the spirit. And what does the life of the spirit look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Um, Galatians also has, there's this great allegory of Hagar and Sarah. Um, there's, there's some really great spots in here. There's this weird reference to there's no longer male or female. And maybe we should just say really quickly, does that mean that Paul doesn't believe that gender is a real thing? <laughs> that it's a construct? No, he's talking about before God, all these things that used, there used to be these different classifications, right? Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, slave and free. There's different laws in the Old Testament for all these different groups of people, male and female. The, the men can go so far into the tabernacle, the women can go so far, you know, there's laws about, all those things are done away with. That doesn't mean Paul would say there's no such thing as men and women anymore. It just means before God, that's not our justification, right? You don't get justified because you're a man or a woman. <laughs> you get justified by faith, okay? But you can see some other things in there. And uh, here, I was going to quote this earlier, but let me just end on this note. Here's what Luther said about Galatians. He loved Galatians so much, um, and it was so important in, his, um, in the Reformation, and especially in the conflicts with the, um, the, the Roman Catholics. He wrote this, the epistle to the Galatians is my own little epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my Catherine of Bora. That's his wife's name. Okay, so Luther says, I love Galatians as much as I love my wife. That's good. All right, let's end on that note. And um, next week, oh, next week we won't have class. I'm going to be out of town next week. So no class next Wednesday, but we will on July 5th, okay? Um, I don't think there will be any 4th of July fireworks on the 5th, so we'll have class on the 5th of July. And what we'll look at on the 5th is Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, okay? We'll do 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you declare us righteous, not according to any works that we have performed or accomplished, not because of any merit, um, not even because of any virtue that we might be able to signal about before the world around us, but we thank you that through your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, and by faith in him, we are declared righteous in your sight. We pray that we would always return to this wonderful teaching, um, to this great reality um, in, in every trial that we have, in every temptation to doubt uh, and to worry. May we find comfort in the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.